I'm Ed Struzik, the author of Swamplands, uh, Tundra, Beavers, Quaking Bogs, and the Improbable World of Peat. I'm also a uh, fellow of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy in the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of For Pete's Sake, and I am your host, Becca Free. Today I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with the author Ed Struzik, and as you heard, he wrote a book about peatlands. One of the things I appreciate about Ed is his undying enthusiasm for peatlands, and in our conversation, we went all over the place and it was very fun. As we talk about in the interview, peatlands have been plagued for centuries by negative perceptions and by human degradation, and Ed is on a mission to help change the narrative so that we can really just value these places that deserve to be valued. And in a world that is obsessed with wanderlust and an adventure, how about we start appreciating the beauty of wetlands? I also want to apologize for the sound quality from my side of the interview. We had some technical issues and we had to forgo my tried and true recording platform. And we opted to use an undisclosed popular video conferencing app. <laughs> if you know, you know. And all of that to say, my audio isn't great, and I apologize, and hopefully we'll be back to normal sound quality in the future. I hope it's not too distracting. And in a way, it kind of feels like a rite of passage for me as a budding podcaster to go through tech issues and have poor sound quality, so here we are, podcasting. Nice. Anyways, hope you enjoy the conversation. That's kind of my hope is just to bring either graduate students who want to know more about peatlands or just like really anybody that is like, what are these peatlands that are becoming more, a little bit more popular, I guess, in, I don't know, policy discussions and climate change discussions. Yeah. That's kind of the goal. Oh, good. And so, yeah, enough about uh, me and my uh, peatland communication <laughs> endeavors. Um, I would... Yeah, I just want to talk about your recent book that came out and where I like to start with my guests is get a little bit more on your background um, in education, career, and especially any early peatland memories that you have. Okay, well, uh, I probably my career started, the trajectory for this career started when I was working in Kalani National Park uh, in the Yukon. And uh, that was my one of my first introductions to peat, peatlands. Uh, I was uh, I was a graduate student at Queen's University at the time, so I was working there in the late spring, summer, and early fall, and I did that for about three years, and got to explore a lot of the park uh, when it was first created, just shortly after it was first created. And my job basically was to uh, try to gather as much in, in, information in the backcountry uh, to figure out you know, what trails could be developed or recommended. Some of them would just simply animal trails or old mining trails. And then hiking across various, we'd be flown in by helicopter and have to find our way out. Uh, and Basically, the introduction to peatlands is that they're the hardest places to hike uh, because, you know, the, the ground is very unstable. Uh, they're ankle breakers uh, quite often. I, you know, even, even in the third year, often making the mistake, thinking that if we cross this sort of uh, peatland, we would get, it would cut half the distance, but it would actually cut half the distance, but add about two hours, three hours to the hike. Uh, and it was uh, an eye-opener because uh, it, it seemed to me just, you know, superficial observations that uh, most of the wildlife tend to be concentrated in the peatland areas. Uh, you know, they, it, it, and when you think about it, it, it made sense because, you know, for caribou, that's where you find lichen. For bears, there's uh, berries and root vegetables. Uh, so there was an interesting predator-prey concept none of them being, you know, exclusively attached to these peatlands, uh, but definitely spending an awful lot of time there. And so that sort of was the, the start. Um, I ended up uh, quitting my job in Kalani and uh, because uh, of some management issues, uh, uh, 
they wanted to develop it, um, create a Banff uh, North kind of thing in the Yukon. And uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I ended up quitting and uh, I wrote a magazine article about it and which got an awful lot of attention. And I thought maybe I'd like to be a journalist. And uh, so after quitting my job, I tried for about three or four years to be a journalist and uh, nearly starved to death. Um, and figured that uh, I had to have a better action plan and then went back, did a graduate degree in journalism uh, and became the Arctic Bureau Chief uh, for a one-man operation uh, covering the Yukon Northwest Territories, Alaska, and to some extent, Greenland, and um, developed essentially a, a career after that. Started working for various magazines and then writing books. And I got appointed uh, a fellow at the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at uh, Queen's University about 14 years ago. About 12 years ago, Yale University approached me about writing uh, uh, regularly for their international online magazine, Yale Environment 360. Uh, I just finished my eighth or ninth book. Um, and uh, I was also just finished being the Jaroslavsky Fellow at the University of Waterloo uh, last week. And now I'm going to be joining the International Joint Commission next month um, uh, on a contract basis. Um, and so that's where I am. And I'm also working on another book again. What is the International Joint Commission? International Joint Commission is the organization that was created by treaty a little over 100 years ago between Canada and the United States that essentially manages water uh, along the boundary between Canada and the United States. So all the rivers and, and lakes uh, that we share uh, the commission basically decides how we manage them so they're not polluted when water goes from one side to the other, how much water goes from one side to the other. It's sort of an overall plan to manage groundwater, river water, lake water uh, that we both share. It's becoming increasingly important now with climate change and scarcity of water. Uh, and they called me up about a month ago and asked me if I'd be interested to work with them on a uh, more or less a part-time basis. Um, and uh, I'd heard, I went to the, uh, the director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy, asked him what he thought. And he's, he said that he's only heard wonderful things about the commission. Uh, it kind of operates almost in secret. You rarely hear about them, but it's a pretty big organization. And by all accounts, it's a really a great uh, group of people to work for. And I've already started to discover that. That's awesome. And sounds like a really exciting opportunity. Yeah. You know, at the same time, I, I, I get to continue writing magazine articles and books. And uh, so it doesn't conflict with my, you know, my shtick now. Uh, but it'll, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to learn something new and uh, I think very important as well. Thanks. Well, uh, the reason I brought you on today is to talk about your book that was published, was it earlier this year or last year? Uh, last fall. Last fall, okay. And it's kind of made, I mean, at least in my circles, it's made its rounds and has uh, had a major impact on. The, at least the peatland research community <laughs> that I'm a part of. And so I thought it would just be lovely to have you on to talk about the book and your experiences with it. It's uh, it's kind of my favorite genre. I love the genre of like travel writing, but also nature writing and kind of this like, I don't know, creative nonfiction sort of genre. And I, uh, yeah, I'm always looking for books like that. And it was just very fun to read something uh, within, my, within my wheelhouse. You made so, my day. <laughs> <laughs> what's that sorry you made my day <laughs> <laughs> excellent yeah I mean it's a very fun interesting read and I mean up to I guess with my graduate studies I primarily just thought about peatlands from a northern context and there is a lot of northern peatland uh, information and stories in your book but it also goes down to the United States where I'm from I'm actually talking to you from the United States right now so the Mojave Desert uh, peatland discussion was also very fascinating for me. And so, yeah, I just want to 
want to get into it and hear about, I guess, also your experience writing it, uh, putting together <laughs> a book like that is also a very interesting topic for me. So wherever uh, the conversation goes, I'm I'm excited for it. But I guess to give you a concrete um, direction before we dive too deep into things, in case this is somebody's first episode of the podcast I listen to, could you describe what a peatland is and why they should care about them? Well, peatlands are uh, uh, basically mostly fens and bogs and to a lesser extent uh, marshes and swamp that accumulate peat. And that's basically decayed vegetation that uh, builds up in cool, moist, oxygen-free environments. And it piles up very slowly, very gradually over the decades and, and centuries and millennia to the point where you can have it, uh, you know, 100 meters thick in some places. That's an extreme example, but you know, uh, Hudson Bay lowlands uh, has got a lot of very thick peat, um, as does you know much of Siberia, and uh, they provide, as you well know, a lot of uh, ecosystem services. They filter water, uh, they mitigate floods because mosses, for example, like sphagnum, can absorb 25% their weight in moisture. Hi, don't mind me cutting in. Just your local fact checker here. And sphagnum can actually hold 16 to 26 times their dry weight, and so not percent. So even more impressive. Uh, and I always give this example when I talk to people about the uh, catastrophic uh, flood in Calgary in 2013, which was a, a rain on snow event. Uh, one of the reasons why that flood was so catastrophic was that uh, the, the city had essentially drained most of the peatlands, about 80, 90 percent of it in and around the city to make way for residential developments, uh, industry and buildings and mosquito control. And so when all that water came in, the peatlands, you know, the mosses would have absorbed a significant amount of it, uh, but there was nothing there. So it just uh, spread out and took revenge on uh, those uh, residential areas and business parks um, that had been drained. It's, you know, it's just the, how water works and gravity works when there's uh, nothing there to sop it up. Uh, the other part about it uh, was that it could have been a heck of a lot worse um, had, say, the Sibold fan, which Sherry Westbrook at the University of Saskatchewan has been studying, uh, had that not been there to hold back a beaver-managed fan, hold back a lot of water, uh, it would have been a lot worse. And as well as the forests around the fence. Um, you know, so filters water, it uh, mitigates floods, uh, they really are resilient. They can, you know, uh, Catherine Lafarge at the University of Alberta regrew a moss that she plucked out of a, uh, out of a glacier. It was 400 years old. Uh, you know, so they're, they're almost indestructible uh, if you leave them to their own devices. And the other one I like best is, is that they, um, they can slow or stop a wildfire in their tracks. Uh, the Fort McMurray fire was a classic example of that. Uh, the firefighters had assumed that uh, that fire would slow uh, at a wetland, a peatland, uh, just outside the city. What they didn't realize was the forestry department had drained the peatland as an experiment in growing trees. And so they were black spruce and uh, highly flammable trees. So when it hit that so-called wetland, uh, it just rushed through there and got to the city a lot faster than anybody expected. Thank you for that overview. Those are <laughs> really good examples and yeah, very concrete examples of what happens when we move our wetlands and peatlands especially, especially when wildfire is brought into play. Would you say that that was your motivation for writing the book? And I should say, like, the book, it's Swamplands. Um, it'll be in the show notes, but in case we, we haven't said that already. But, yeah, what was your motivation yeah. for writing it? Uh, the motivation, it, it really began uh, with a uh, canoe trip I did, well, the first of five trips I did to Banks Island in the Arctic Archipelago, uh, and uh, which is sort of uh, northeast of Alaska, north of, uh, of the Yukon. Uh, the most westerly island in the archipelago. And it was, uh, I was aiming to do canoe the Thompson River 
and assumed, I think it had only been done once before, but we didn't know by who, but I had assumed that it was polar desert like most of the other islands I'd visited at the time. And it began as that, it was just nothing but sand, you know, the area gets less than six uh, inches of precip precipitation annually. But as the uh, trip down the Thompson unfolded, it just started getting more lush, verdant. Um, it sort of looked a little bit more like the flow country of Scotland than, uh, than an Arctic island. And what was really mesmerizing was that uh, at the time there were 80,000 muskox on the island, one island, which is two thirds of all the muskox in the world. There were Arctic wolves that visited our camp on a regular basis. Uh, I remember one night seeing 14 foxes in a, a, around a den site. There were tens of thousands of snow geese, uh, sandhill cranes, uh, you know, ground nesting birds like long spurs. It just was it was full of life. And on subsequent trips, you know, participating in a raptor survey with uh, ornithologists. Uh, and with a geologist uh, and bryologist from the University of Alberta, it just kept coming back to me. Was I, Why is this place so different from most of the other Arctic islands, which many of it, which have these small hotspots, but nothing as grand as this. And I kind of figured out that it, it was probably peat. Um, there's so much of it, it's so thick. And of course, as every gardener uh, and farmer knows, peat is a terrific medium for growth. Uh, and so plants of all kinds do very well in this environment. Uh, so the grasses and sedges, and which are really good for muskox and caribou. Uh, and uh, I thought, okay, well, maybe there is something to, to this. And I, I started exploring the idea uh, you know, travel to different peatlands, uh, just largely for the fun of it, just just find out more and more. And I think the, uh, the one that the clincher was a 66 day solo kayak trip I did down the uh, Nahani Liard and Mackenzie rivers. And uh, at one point along the way, my water filter went on me. Um, and the Mackenzie River, as anybody who has ever been in that area knows, is one of the siltiest uh, rivers you could find. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, so even if I left my my water standing overnight, it was there was still silt in it. So I had to really watch about how much uh, water I could consume on that trip and gradually getting more and more dehydrated. And it got worse when the temperatures started to rise in the 90 degree range and there's no sun and it's out for 20, 22 hours a day because it is the land of the midnight sun. And I was literally hallucinating and there was not, all the streams that were coming into the Mackenzie were similarly turbid really and warm and water was not good. Uh, so I got to the point near uh, F Fort Good Hope uh, where the river is about uh, three k's wide, a uh, mile and a half wide, say, and then it just constricts to about 500 meters. And uh, I was very nervous about it because I, I expected there to be some big rapids going through there. They are called the Ramparts Rapid. But before I got there, I noticed, uh, you know, just in on this top of this hill, you know, water shimmering along a stream coming down. And I decided to paddle over, it took quite a while just to explore it. You know, is this possibility? My heart going to be broken again by some really turbid, warm, muddy water coming out. But this one was very clear and crystal clean. It smelled like peated whiskey, which I brought along and dispatched long ago. And I drank heartily and decided I was going to set up my tent there. And then after drinking heartily, I climbed up the hill and there was this amazing wetland that just went on for as far as the eye could see. And I saw so much life there as I did on Banks Island. Uh, signs of caribou, moose in the distance, 1% uh, of the loons in Western North America nest in this one spot. Uh, it was green, watery, mushy. There was orchids um, and, you know, the Calypso orchid, which is a favorite of mine. I, I was just so enchanted with this place. 
And uh, it ended in, in a, a, a funny way. I, I, I realized then, you know, there's, there's something to Pete. And as I went back to my uh, uh, kayak to pull out a stove, I, I brought a, a box of Kraft cheese dinner for an occasion like this after eating uh, uh, beans and rice for about 50 days. I wanted something salty and chewy and uh, something that had sustained me during my college days. And as I was beginning to cook it up, there was these ravens starting to uh, caw and croak and flying above me on the hill. And anybody knows when ravens get excited, it's because there's something down on the ground that's caught their interest. And when I looked up, I could see this grizzly bear coming down to that stream towards my camp. And uh, I had one mouthful of craft cheese din dinner and uh, dumped it into the river, got back to my kayak, but realized then and there that, okay, if I could get a few more stories like this, I might have a book. And so that's how it was launched. I just started to travel uh, around, mostly around North America. Uh, I was in Russia for a while. Uh, I had planned to go to Finland, but then uh, COVID came along. And it was, uh, it was momentous because I'd just got out of the Great Dismal Swamp for a week. And I had a message from Air Canada basically saying that uh, they were having only one, uh, one more flight out of uh, uh, Richmond, Virginia. And I had to be on that flight. Otherwise, I was stranded. So I had to effectively drive overnight to catch the plane in the morning. And that was the end of my peatland travels. Well, it's a shame you weren't able to make it over to Finland, but you packed a lot of stories into one book so i think uh the readers can forgive the, the lack of finished peatlands i guess <laughs> yeah you know it's a it's fortuitous in the sense that uh it, it probably would have been too much to try to cram the whole world into one book and so you know i make mention of other you know what's happened to peatlands in europe and indonesia and even south america uh and so I, I think that was timely in the sense that uh, I was reminded and I talked to my publisher about it, that we had more than enough material, more than enough stories for the book. And what I really wanted to do was not to, uh, you know, the book to be preachy, but to be entertaining, you know, to be a bit like a travelogue, uh, show people places that we've kind of overlooked and underrated and uh, try to bring them alive. And I, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun doing it. And I have to say that I had a, a, a new appreciation or a, a revealed appreciation for peatland ecologists because it's gotta be one of the hardest jo jobs because it's not just about water, it's about the chemistry in the groundwater, the acidity. Uh, you've gotta know a little bit about botany, uh, engineering to some extent there there are so many disciplines involved that uh, uh, make it a really a fascinating uh, subject of science definitely I'm definitely learning that in my graduate program and I something that was striking to me as I was reading the book was yeah just the number of scientists that you mentioned by name and gave a synopsis of what they were working on that was really impressive to me have, did you talk to most of those people or were you reading the literature, maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, a little bit of both. Usually, you know, when I, when I embark on a book, I try to do as much reading of the scientific literature to, to determine who's who and who's done a lot. So, you know, Dave Cooper at, in Colorado has, you know, done an extraordinary amount of work on uh, a mountain peatlands. Uh, you know, in South America and North America. And he was, so he was a go-to person. We were actually supposed, I was supposed to get together with him in the field, um, but of course COVID uh, came along. There is Dale Vitt, who was from the University of Alberta. I knew him per peripherally uh, when, when he was there. And of course he's, you know, he's one of the pi pioneers of peatland restoration. But the other people I just, uh, you know, I, you, you kind of have a, a rating of who who are the most interesting and and also perhaps the most produ productive but one thing that um, 
uh, always has come through with me when I'm writing books or magazines is that students are also great because they share with you an, an enthusiasm and a sense of discovery that, you know, the, the, the warriors tend to kind of, you know, shrug their shoulders at. So I, you know, I, I tried to get out with, with, with them as well to get their views on things. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I have to say that I, I really enjoyed uh, working with these peatland ecologists. Uh, and they were so, I think because as well, there's up until recently, you know, they're so overlooked and underrated is that they're very, uh, uh, very interested in sharing their information. And so, you know, you didn't have to, I didn't have to do a hard sell. Uh, once I told them what I was interested in, you know, they were quite uh, welcoming to offer whatever they could. So that, that was great. Yeah, I think generally scientists are, I mean, we always like to do, we want to do our own communication, but when there's a, a communicator who does that full time, we're more than happy to be like, yes, please, <laughs> stories, do something with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, that was, that was the easy part. And uh, uh, I learned an awful lot. I mean, it was a steep learning curve for me because, uh, you know, trying to figure out, even, even I think peatland ecologists are still confused by some of the definitions that are out there. Uh, you know, you say that bogs are acidic and fens tend to be, you know, have more nutrients because they're fed by groundwater and the groundwater, you know, interacts with the minerals along the way. But you've got uh, fens in Yellowstone, which are so acidic that nothing will grow in or around them. Um, so that that's the fun part, you know, and and people have different names for them in different countries. And so it was a steep learning curve. It still is. Yeah. Yeah. There's all the different definitions are a little bit mind boggling sometimes. And then, yeah, they're not always shared all over the place, but I guess it's what kind of makes it fun. It's different people take ownership of different words and yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, we, we just started classifying, you know, the wetland wetlands, uh, in what the 19 late in 1980s and 1990s. So it's really a new science. Um, and one that continues to unfold the fact that, uh, you know, we've the biggest tropical peatland in the world was only discovered a few years ago, or that the pitcher plant uh, actually consumes uh, uh, juvenile salamanders. That, blow, that blows my mind. Uh, you know, that rattlesnakes den and peat in Ontario, that's the way they survive a winter. These are all things that we're just finding out in the last, you know, few years. So there's much more to be learned, I'm sure. Yeah, something I was curious about is how you chose the, the subjects, the specific uh, wetlands, if you will, to, to go visit and to explore. Well, there was more than just what appeared in the book. So not every, every, wet, every peatland that I visited appeared in the book. Uh, the ones that I chose were the ones that had uh, the most to offer. I tried to, you know, mix, mix it up a little bit. So peatlands in the Arctic that are in permafrost are obviously very important. And you've got unique peatlands such, such as the Hudson Bay lowlands which I've visited seven times over the years, you know, they've got, it's really a neat place because you've got polar bears denning in peat there and you've got these uh, birds, you know, uh, more than a billion birds that migrate from South America and the Southern United States that nest there. Some of them we know very little, little about. Um, and uh, the one in the Mojave Desert, you know, the fact that there's actually a fen still there that's uh, being sustained by, uh, by groundwater uh, from glacial melt-off that it's 15,000 years old. Um, so it shows that even with climate change, many of these uh, ecosystems are, you know, they they're might, might diminish and be degraded by climate change, but they can hang in there for an awful lot of time. Uh, so long as we allow that uh, water from various sources to get in there. The Mojave Desert peatland was very striking to me, I guess, because I've spent a lot of time in the desert Southwest. Just the idea that there are 
peatlands or even wetlands just generally in that area is kind of mind-blowing to me and then the the background um i guess since white settlers showed up in like 1800s or so was also very fascinating it's a crazy story you know it's uh uh, as I point out in my book, that there was actually plans to build a, uh, well, they first brought in cattle from Texas to try to raise cattle in, in and around the peatland. And there's still cattle in, that, in, in those areas. How they manage the heat, I, I do not know. And how they manage to survive, I do not know. Ed brings up a pretty good question here. How do cows survive in the heat of the desert southwest? And as someone who has spent a fair amount of time <laughs> in the desert southwest, I am kind of sheepish that I haven't like thought of that question. Because obviously in the summers here, it gets very, very hot. And you don't think of cows as desert animals, because they're not. <laughs> and a lot of, at least, so I did some, I did some internet digging, some googling, and from what I found that a lot of the cow species that we have today in the United States came from the UK, and so they are generally large, really fat, kind of lumber around, have short stubby legs, and we like those because they produce a lot of meat, and they, yeah, they're what we like. But when you have ranching in the desert southwest, those cows don't really survive very well, and you have to put a lot of resources into them to get them to grow big and fat. One of, I think it was a Guardian article that I read, they talk about how just like humans, when you're really hot, you don't like to eat. That's the same for cows and other livestock. And so with climate change, as the temperatures are getting warmer everywhere, and including in the desert southwest, they, farmers are having to find ways to keep their livestock cool. And so then I read a High Country News article specifically about drought-tolerant cows, which I thought was very interesting, that there is a species of cow, I want to say it came from Spain originally, but has um, been spread around North and South America, and generally these aren't really popular cows for large-scale farming. They're much smaller, a little bit hardier, and so... The High Country News article was about some researchers, I want to say back in 2014, um, trying to see if there was a market for these cows because they can survive really, really hot conditions. Um, they still walk around during the heat of the day and they don't just eat grass, they eat other desert um, species, other plant species, and seems like they could be a better fit for those areas, especially with the changing climate. I would definitely recommend both those articles, the Guardian article and the High Country News article, and I will link them in the show notes. But then, you know, they they started uh, using the peat to grow corn and, you know, food stuff for for their cattle. Uh, there was uh, an attempt to build a, uh, a, a subdivision, a residential town with water skiing opportunities that they were going to pump in all the groundwater to create this uh, artificial lake uh, that nearly got there. You know, the case went to the Supreme Court and then a bunch of celebrities at the time, Jack Lemon, you know, a uh, Oscar winner got involved, uh, did a documentary on the area um, and uh, saved it to some, to some extent, but it has been so badly abused that it's amazing that uh, it's still there. I mean, it was, it's been dug up, but the, the groundwater has been diverted to so many different places, and yet it still wants to live. Yeah, the resilience of nature that that story shows is really beautiful. Another uh, location that was very interesting to me was the I don't know if I'm saying this right, but the Alakai Swamp in Hawaii. Yeah, in the island of Kauai. Uh, I, I came across this by accident, uh, reading a, a, a scientific paper. Uh, there's not been a lot about them, but that there was this mention. Uh, it was actually a geological survey report in the 1940s or 50s where they were actually uh, inventorying the peat in the Alagai Swamp, in the bogs of the Alagai Swamp, as a possibility of using it as fuel to sustain uh, the people on the island of Kauai. They fortunately concluded that it was not, uh, it was too far away and not sufficiently uh, uh, full of energy 
that would be required and uh, left it. So as I pursued this, I was trying to figure out a way how to, you know, first get there and what the, you know, the logistics uh, part of it was solved by the fact that I'd applied to something called the, Na uh, the National Tropical Garden uh, Foundation which uh, funds journalists, uh, I think a handful, to come to the island of Kauai every year. I think there's six that are funded uh, and learning, learning all about the, the, the flora and fauna of Hawaii. And so I applied for this and to, to my delight and shock, I was accepted. So that was the jumping off point. And it turned out that uh, two of the scientists that have done the most work in, uh, uh, in the peatlands of Hawaii were also uh, uh, part of the program. And so I got out, out there with them as well and exploring that area. And that was a heck of a lot of fun because one of the scientists actually found, uh, I think, the last of three of this particular orchid left in the world. And uh, they ended up uh, taking them out and trying to figure out ways to, to regrow them. And it took about 10 years and they brought them back and they are now in closures and secret parts of the uh, Alakai Swamp. And it was an amazing place because uh, I remember at one point uh, bending down to tie my, my, my hiking boot and there was a plant I've seen so often in, you know, the boreal forest of Canada, the sundew. And it, there it was in the tropical garden, you know, in a, in a bog in, in a tropical peatland in Hawaii. And I was trying to figure out how did it get here? I mean, it's generally speaking, a plant that sits, you know, is dormant for six or seven months of the year under a layer of snow. And here it is in a tropical bog. And the best answer I got was that uh, they, there are, are birds that migrate from Alaska that uh, overwinter in Hawaii. And they figured that they just brought along some seeds and it ended up taking root in the bogs there and have evolved and now are basically there grow year round. They're called fly eaters by, by native Hawaiians. That's really interesting. But... I mean, yeah, we know that a lot of birds go from wetlands in the south to wetlands in the north, but that's pretty interesting that that's yeah. the they disperse some of those seeds. There's another place I wanted to get to in Patagonia where the scientists found something similar, uh, but came to the conclusion that it was introduced by tourists uh, in some way. Uh, but my thinking is, uh, and I, I, I just recently sent them a note, is that, you know, it's, it's quite possible that it's similar to what happened in Hawaii. It's just a bird that flies from South America, as we know, that go to, may have come back with some seeds. And so now you have this, uh, they call it an invasive species, but it, you know, it's one that uh, came from one bog to another. Hmm. That's really fun and interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'll have to tell you that the your description of the Alakai Swamp was very uh, striking for me. And I think the night after I read that passage, I had a dream that I visited the Alakai Swamp. <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's worth going. Uh, and what's very peculiar about it is that uh, I, I, I hiked it twice. Um, and I think saw only, you know, a total of four people along the way. Uh, a little bit more at the beginning, but most people uh, abandon doing it for, I think, several reasons. One is, is that there's a, uh, uh, the soil there uh, is a clay-like as you head in. It's red, uh, and when it gets wet, which ha happens often on, the, on an island as wet as, as Kauai, uh, unless you've got spiked shoes, it's almost impossible to walk uphill or downhill. So people were just, would start off, do the first uh, kilometer or so, and then just, this is enough. And uh, so that was the nice part about it. Um, the other part about it is, is that there are no mosquitoes, which is, anybody bog lovers know, is that there are a heck of a lot of mosquitoes in these, and, and biting flies in these uh, ecosystems. But there's nothing like that in uh, the bogs of Hawaii. So you, you're walking along, you know, in a t-shirt and 
there's no reason to put on any bug dope or anything like that. Uh, so it's, and it's, it's not a tough hike because as long as you've got spike shoes, it's not a tough hike at all. I think, you know, it's a, you know, three hours in, three hours out. Um, and you really get to see there's boardwalks along the way. Some of them not in great shape. A few staircases uh, also not engaged. It's not well-maintained. And I think that's the other reason that uh, it keep, keeps people out. But really worth, uh, really worth the trip if you go there. Is it a protected natural area or some sort of park? It, uh, it is. Parts of it are. It's, it's also considered to be a sacred area by uh, native uh, uh, Hawaiians, people that came from Polynesia. Uh, and um, uh, there have been attempts, so there was one attempt to dam the river that drains out of it to produce hydroelectricity. That was ended. Uh, the problem, though, right now is that it's being overrun by, uh, by uh, pigs that were brought to the island uh, and by uh, goats and, uh, and cats. And they are consuming all of the, in, you know, all of the native plant species and introducing to some extent invasive species that are being brought in by tourists from the mainland. So these animals come from the lowlands, migrate, nor migrate north into the Alakai Swamp. So it's a big challenge. And unfortunately, there was an attempt to uh, call the, the pigs and the goats. Uh, but uh, Native Hawaiians got so used to hunting them that uh, they became almost violent in trying to stop it. So this is a huge challenge that that peatland is facing right now. Is that uh, is there going to be more and more pigs and goats and feral cats taking over and and destroying it in the future? I don't know the answer, but when I left, it was not looking good. In fact, the scientists that uh, uh, I was with actually decided to retire early because the funding for his program by the Fish and Wildlife Service was canceled. So, you know, they have more, more rare species than any other state in, North, in the United States, uh, but no money to uh, uh, do anything about it. That's a shame. It is a shame, yeah. And I found this, you know, pretty much everywhere. It's a difference, I think, in the United States between uh, the National Park Service, which has a lot of money, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that doesn't have a lot of money. And so, you know, for example, in the Pocasins, where they're trying to reintroduce, reintroduce red wolves to that peatland ecosystem there, uh, the, the refuge manager was, you know, in, he just didn't have the support. I think he said he, he had lost six people and he was doing some of the, the grunt work himself because he didn't have anybody to do it. Plus, he was getting a lot of opposition from, you know, some of the local landowners that uh, didn't want wolves, uh, didn't like the idea of, uh, the, of the peatland being re-wetted, uh, restored. Uh, a lot of it came coming from uh, extreme right-wing groups uh, that just see, you know, menace with anything the government is doing. And so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, basically under at least the Trump administration, back down and uh you know at one point um uh stop the reintroduction of wolves uh and i've just seen that that has been reversed during the biden administration so hopefully we'll see some progress yeah that seemed to be a theme i mean yeah it was a theme throughout your book that uh, you'd explore these really interesting places and then talk a little bit about the the human threats, and you didn't belabor those points. And so it didn't feel like it was, I mean, the book didn't feel heavy. Um, mostly it was just like okay. a joyful explore, exploration of all the really cool peatlands, um, mostly throughout North America. But yeah, you can't help but <laughs> feel a little bit uh, weighed down by how threatened these ecosystems are, either because of direct human activities or indirect things like climate change. So. As you were traveling and visiting these places, oh man, what is the, I'm not sure what the question I really have here is, but like, <laughs> did that feel heavy? 
Um, no, it, you know, it, it was it, it was just startling, I think, to uh, see how such low-hanging fruit, you know, because maintaining and restoring peatlands really doesn't require a, for, a, a lot of investment compared to, say, trying to grow trees, which do, because they, they use not only a lot of water, but they need a lot of fertilizer. Uh, and also, you know, they can burn down pretty quickly in a fire. Whereas peatlands are much more resilient. They provide more ecosystem services than a forest. You know, the example I give in the book is the Hudson Bay Lowlands store, you know, five times more carbon than the equivalent area of the Amazon rainforest on top of being, you know, a denning area for polar bears and grizzly bears now and black bears and migratory caribou and woodland caribou and billions of birds. Um, and you just, it doesn't require an awful lot. And I think that this is what came out uh, for me, and I don't know whether I really emphasize this well enough in the book, is that I think that, you know, human nature is always looking for the big fix to solve something, you know, like uh, building $50 billion worth of dikes to save the, you know, the city of Nor New Orleans. And once they've spent it, they realize they're going to have to spend another $5 billion because sea levels are rising so rapidly. And they do have a plan to do that. The, the Corps of Engineers is going ahead with that plan. Uh, but there's so many cheaper ways of achieving, uh, you know, the same thing, such as restoring peatlands, keeping carbon in the peatlands, uh, reintroducing endangered species in these places because you don't have like most national parks people getting in the way uh, you know peatlands are not uh hospitable places for hikers you know you can maybe paddle through them but uh hiking is very problematic um they have just they they just offer so much so much and yet we tend to think all right you know let's spray a whole bunch of silica into the atmosphere to block out the rays of the sun um, you know, in a hugely expensive and risky project um, that, you know, could actually backfire because you don't want to block out the sun in some places, especially in the Arctic, where, you know, an awful lot of species are dependent on, you know, sea ice species are dependent on, on that sunshine. So if we turn things cloudy to try to dial down the temperature, it may achieve, you know, uh, reducing the temperature and maybe the degradation of some peatlands, but it can have unintended consequences. All right. Some of you might be a little bit lost with what Ed is talking about here, um, talking about putting silica in the atmosphere to block the sun. So that is a popular geoengineering theory that has arisen because, as we all know, we are facing unprecedented climate change and it's because of us. We know that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but the collective and political willpower um, doesn't seem to be quite there yet. And so a lot of people are concerned that we won't be able to get there in the appropriate amount of time. So how geoengineering comes in is there is this idea that if we to essentially buy ourselves more time, if we put particles in the atmosphere that can reflect the sun's rays, then that can lower the temperature of the earth artificially until we get the political and collective willpower to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions ourselves. And many think that's a really bad idea <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, there could be, as Ed talked about, unintended consequences, and I feel like Ed talked about a lot of the reasons why it's a bad idea. Uh, but there is a task force with the National Academy of Sciences that are recommending that the government in the United States funds a national research program with uh, several hundred millions of dollars so that we can look into this sort of research. Like, is that actually feasible? Because right now it's a theory. Um, I ha found some cool Scientific American articles that argue for and against this type of geoengineering, and I have put those in the show notes, so feel free to check those out. Whereas simply preserving and protecting or re-restoring a peatland is really simple. Uh, 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm overstating that, but it doesn't require an awful lot of effort. And the footprint of these places are, are not large. You know, there's a study out of the University of Waterloo saying that, you know, a peatland that's one hectare large is just as efficient as one that is 100,000 hectares, you know, in doing, providing the services that are needed. Um, so, you know, I, 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 just, I, I just think that this is really a simple, it's not going to solve the climate problem, but it is certainly a cheap way of addressing it and then getting a lot of value-added uh, benefits as a result. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I guess like all environmental issues, we need to have societal backing for that. And for a really long time, before the creation of the United States or Canada, uh, humans, we just don't value wetlands. <laughs> but, Partially for what you've already stated, we you can't really walk through them. You can't grow things in them. Uh, but that's there are a great few cultures that, that do value them, but for the most part, uh, yeah, large culture doesn't. So, yeah. uh, how do you think we're going, or what ways do you see that we could change the narrative a little bit to get people to care about either well, keeping these well, intact or restoring? Yeah, I, but yeah, I think I think the narrative uh, is beginning to change in North America as it has very much in Europe. Uh, Europe and the United Kingdom uh, and the Scandinavian countries, you know, the, the lights went on some time ago that we can't con do, continue doing this because, you know, it's affecting water quality, uh, land is subsiding below sea level, level in many places where peat has been harvested, you know, contributes to climate change. And so, you know, they've lost so much that they realize uh, uh, this can't continue on. Uh, we just have so much of it left here in North America that we continue to take it for granted. But uh, I have to say that after writing this book in just six months, the number of uh, emails and invitations I've got from uh, local groups and even national groups uh, who are really on to this subject, like Ducks Unlimited uh, is doing a tremendous amount of work right across the country. You know, they call them wetlands, but uh, ninety percent of the wetlands in Canada are peatlands. It's just it's just a, a a definition issue. So a lot is being done by them, the Nature Conservancy, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Societies, and a lot of small local groups. And I think that you know, as uh, as this becomes this gets discussed more and more. You know, and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that, you know, the Wall Street Journal reviewed my book and said it was a must read book. Um, you know, if I can win over the Wall Street Journal, you know, or if Pete can win over the Wall Street Journal, that's fantastic. And now I can tell you that I'm part of the New York Times Bog Squad, which they've created, and it's uh, 30 peatland, uh, all of them peatland ecologists, except for me who essentially are part of a group that is advising the New York Times on their coverage of peatlands in the future. And the next issue, the next big thing they're going to do on it is a big Q&A. They've already got a whole bunch of questions and we're in the process of answering them. So when you get the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, along with you know, the, the, uh, the usual suspects like Earth Island uh, Institute, uh, the Revelator, uh, getting on board. I think we've got some momentum here and it's going to continue. And I think that at some point, some smart person in government is going to come up with an idea that, uh, that will fly, you know, with, through the bureaucracy. That's the problem right now is the bottleneck. Good ideas never really make it to the top. There's always somebody to squish it because they're risk adverse. Nobody wants uh, you know, to um, uh, embrace something that may not work. But in this case, because I think the likelihood for success is so great, I think we're going to see at some point is that if we're going to deal with this wildfire situation, which is a subject of my next book coming out summer, this summer, is that we've got to begin restoring the, the, the peatlands because bogs and fens and marshes and swamps are a firefighter's best friend. Um, no amount of water bombers are going to stop a, uh, a fire. They can maybe slow it down and maybe steer it in a different direction. But basically, it's Mother Nature that's going to do it either with a lot of rain or if the fire runs up against a marsh or a bog or a fen or a swamp. 
you know, because they just don't burn very easily. Uh, so there's one, and you think of the billions and billions of dollars and damages that uh, unwanted forest fires are creating in this country. This is a reason why we should have a national inventory of our peatlands, hiring people like you to go out there and find out where is, you know, most of the peat and of the highest value, you know, let's do it an environmental accounting of these ecosystems. It wouldn't require a lot because, you know, we already know a little, you know, a little bit about it. All we need to do is, is have a big fund. You know, there's $2 billion allotted to planting 2 billion trees in the country. Let's spend $2 billion sending out uh, newly graduated students to inventories of peatlands across the country and, and do an evaluation is what would this mean for wildfire mitigation, for flood mitigation, uh, for filtering water and maintaining water in times of drought and for biodiversity. Uh, wouldn't that be wonderful? And then you could put it there. And so when a mine decides they want to develop some, uh, a mine in the Hudson Bay lowlands, we'll have this inventory to say, well, you can mine here because this is of low value, but not here because this is of high value. We have nothing like that right now. Selfishly, as a student that will be graduating in the next uh, few years, I think, yes, let's do that because then there'll be more jobs. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, I think you're uh, absolutely right. We do need, like, we just don't know where a lot of these wetlands are. And <laughs> yeah, then when people are doing environmental impact assessments, as you highlight in a few stories in the book, that some of those companies can just say, yeah, we know some of them are there. We don't know where all of them are, but yeah, look at not right Nalcor, you know, the energy company in Newfoundland, Labrador, building the Muskrat Falls Dam that's, uh, you know, billions of dollars overrun in cost. They come out with an environmental assessment report, identify that many, many peatlands, too many to count, are going to be destroyed, but they're not going to bother to evaluate them because, as they say, quite bold face, there are just too many of them. So we're not going to do any. And they get away with it. I mean, who and then the environmental assessment panel would allow something like that, uh, you know, if it was an old growth forest, there, you know, people would be marching, we'd have, you know, the elderly population gathering together, you know, with their ski poles and canes and stopping this from happening. Um, but it's not an old growth forest, it is a peatland ecosystem that you know, are really unappreciated generally by the public. And we really need to educate the public about how important these areas are. Yeah, maybe we should start calling them old growth wetlands. Well, to some <laughs> extent, you know, to some extent they are old growth because some of the oldest trees in North America are found in, 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 in these, these wetlands, largely because the logging companies, you know, couldn't bother going in. It's just, it, it, it's just too expensive to try to cut down these trees. And many of them are kind of stunted uh, because they don't really grow, you know, like your Pacific coast uh, uh, trees, hemlocks and, and Douglas fir grow, you know, they tend to be small. So their value is not high, but many of them are, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years old. And so they are old growth. Yeah, they're just not the, as you said, not the really impressive, really tall, really wide. Ones. But yeah. unless you go in, you know, I challenge that because when you, some of the most beautiful places I've seen in the world are peatlands. I mean, if you can get into them, uh, you know, I'm here kayaking through a swamp in uh, North Carolina. Uh, it was, I was just blown away at the beauty of the place. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just something that, uh, uh, you know, we have the language that we have developed uh, for, you know, alpine ecosystems, you know, desert, uh, sun-baked deserts, uh, uh, you know, uh, tidal pool environments. Uh, but we've not, we don't have that literature that describes uh, swamps in any kind of uh, flattering way. They tend to be, you know, stinky, soggy, buggy, uh, and haunted by will-o'-wisps and other, you know, swamp creatures. Um, so I think we've got to change that uh, and get people to understand, maybe more photographers out there to uh, document the beauty of many of these places. Agreed. 
very much agreed. And I feel like that's where your book really does shine, is just celebrating these places and yeah, not dwelling on uh, I don't know the negatives as much. Yeah. I mean, you do talk about uh, mosquitoes every once in a while, but that's not the the focus. And you Were can there... protect yourself. <laughs> you can protect yourself. You know, there's a fen just outside of, of the town where I live. Uh, it has two thirds of all the uh, orchids in Western Canada in this tiny, tiny spot. And you could find on a uh, on a one hour hike through there, if you go at the right time of year, you can see maybe 10 or 12 of them, you know, including the lovely ladies, lady slipper, which is, you know, one of the most enchanting orchids I've ever seen, uh, or the Calypso. Uh, they're all there and, and you know there's a trail through there uh, that people can walk along it's fairly accessible uh, but nobody goes when I go out there generally it's by myself you know it's me maybe a couple of other orchid lovers um, and so I don't know whether we want to encourage a lot we probably have to have a, a lottery you know at some point to prevent people too many people from overrunning these places but uh, they really are beautiful they're they they just have the uh you know, it's a it's a primitive kind of beauty uh, of, an, of a lost world, you know, be, and they are they are really a relic of the Ice Age. You know, they are are products of all the swamping that came with deglaciation and all of those Ice Age animals and plants uh, continue to survive in these uh, really harsh systems and evolved in ways that uh, uh, you know, are startling. The fact that, you know, they can't, uh, many plants can't get their food from the, the soil, so they capture it by eating bugs. Uh, you know, a wonderful example of, of evolution. I love it. What advice would you give to someone who comes to you and they want to know how they can, how they personally can help protect and conserve peatlands? Uh, good question. I, I, I think that, you know, it depends on the age. I would encourage uh, young students to go to university and get a degree in the area and work in the area because I think it's a really going to be a, uh, an expanding field of study. Uh, we're going to require an awful lot of uh, uh, expertise in this area as climate uh, comes into play uh, in a more profound way and as there are more uh, uh, stresses associated with uh, energy and industrial development. Um, so young people, for sure, I think that uh, uh, an elder aging population is that uh, go out and visit a, a Fogger and Ben. I know that most uh, communities have, uh, you know, for example, here in Edmonton, there's a Wagner Natural Area Society uh, that has been around for a long time to protect the Wagner Fen. Uh, you know, there are places in Ontario that do similar things. Um, and some of it is just also fun. You know, some of it is just volunteer work of going out counting birds in these places to keep a record of, you know, who's who, what species are returning, which ones are in decline. Uh, I participated in the moth survey, which was an awful lot of fun, you know, spending an evening in a fen, uh, drinking scotch and counting moths that land on a, uh, on a lighted up blanket. Uh, so there's that. And I think, uh, um, you know, if you're politically involved, just start uh, raising questions. Uh, uh, you know, as many many citizens are doing about you know the the clear cutting of old growth forests, uh, they have had an impact. Um, and you know, for example, in British Columbia, the government is really frightened of these uh, older people who have decided enough is enough. And when they go marching out into the wilderness and, you know, stand in a line to stop for the bulldozers uh, and the tree carters from coming in, uh, that makes, that gives politicians pause. And I think that what we've got to do is, is have that energy shared in, into protecting peatlands. I like that. The, the different age stratification. Uh, I appreciate yeah. the, the advice for everybody. Yeah. Thank you. And then my final question is, in all of your travels, what would you say has been your favorite peatland? Uh, I guess I probably have to go to the, the beginning with Banks Island and the Thompson River. Uh, I've been back, you know, five times and it's just, it's such an enchanting place. There's just so much uh, life there. there. I didn't mention, you know, the six species of fish 
you know, that you find in the Thompson River uh, that you won't find in any other river on the Arctic islands. The wolves, the muskox, caribou, so many migratory birds, raptors. Um, it's also a, a beautiful place. Uh, you know, it really is um, very much like, you know, reminds me of some parts of the north end of Scotland, uh, verdant. Um, uh, I, I find it magical. And it also has a, uh, a really interesting history. Um, that's just full of mysteries, you know, one of them being that uh, when uh, there was the search for the lost Franklin expedition in uh, 1850 to 1855, a British ship got stranded on the north end of the island and they had to go hunting to find food, but they saw no muskox on that island. And subsequent explorations right up until around 1950 found no muskox on that island. And the question is, is that if there were no muskox on the island, you know, between 1850 and 1950, how did you get 80,000 muskox uh, so quickly? And they also have, you know, the, the Inuit who have lived there and migrated there have stories of spirits, you know, that uh, have an influence uh, on what happens on the island. A subject of another book, but I, I, I really find that uh, probably one of my one of my favorites it sounds like a really magical place it truly is yeah and the river is so easy to do too the only problem is is that you just have these hellacious winds that come through uh, and of course which would happen when you have you know in the canada basin uh, a lot of very cold water or ice then suddenly hitting this land mass you know where the peat has insulated the the, the warmth so well uh, it's so you just have this blast of wind going through there almost constantly makes it hard to paddle sometimes yeah could you get a sail <laughs> maybe it's going the wrong way <laughs> well the, pro the problem is is that it comes out of the northwest and so the river flows north so the sail would actually just bring you back uh it's just just coming the wrong way if you if you had it to your back you might uh you you We've we've I've rigged this up many times on my Arctic paddling trips, and it works very nicely. But it did not work on the Thompson River. Just no opportunity to do it. Nice. Well, thank you for uh, answering all my questions and talking about yeah your adventures. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. All right, thank you so much to Ed Struzik for joining the pod. And if you haven't already, you should definitely check out his book, Swamplands. You can also keep in contact with Ed by following him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is a little bit uh, hard to pronounce, so I will put that in the show notes. And you can also connect on Twitter or Instagram with me at For Pete's Sake Pod. And there I will be sharing some of the photos that Ed sent to me of some of his adventures. So if you want to see photos of what we talked a little bit about and also some stuff from the book, definitely go check those out there. Finally, thank you to Blue Dot Sessions for their music, courtesy of the Free Music Archive, and to Dr. Yulia Burden for the podcast art. Until next time.